I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. I'm Alexander Rosen, the executive director here at Long Now. Uh, hopefully, most of you didn't have to go to SF Jazz before getting rerouted. How many people went to SF Jazz tonight? Oh, all right. Um, yeah, so it's really great to be back here at the Herps. They've renovated it. If you haven't checked out the murals, they're extra awesome now. Uh, a couple announcements. Um, as you know now, the entire back catalog of the videos of these talks are available on our website. And we have a new iPad app to help you enjoy them. So please do check that out. Uh, also, I, uh, yeah, it works also on uh, Apple TV. Um, also, on October 4th, we're having our first member summit. Uh, and so, any of you, are there any members here? Nice. So, yeah, on October 4th, we're going to, uh, the content that we have been generating for you, it's now your turn to generate content for us. Uh, and so we're gonna, we've been working with Brady Forrest at Ignite to do a series of Ignite talks. So please check your email. There's a link there where you can submit your ideas uh, for Ignite talks, five-minute talks where the 20 slides cycle through at 15 seconds each. Uh, it's, pretty, it's a really great way to get a lot of ideas out fast. So submit your ideas for talks, and we'll be curating those. And then we'll also just have kind of an unconference-style format where people can sign up for topics and tables and uh, really start to get to know each other, which we know um, many of you uh, from around the country uh, as well as just in this area just from judging how many people really want to hang out after these talks and, and talk to each other, we really want to provide a venue for that. So uh, please check that out. And tonight's um, Long Short, a short film that exemplifies long-term thinking, uh, was suggested by Kevin. And uh, these, uh, the You Will campaign, if you remember, from, uh, from 1993 was both prophetic, uh, prophetically right and prophetically wrong at the same time. So don't blink, this is only a 30 second spot, but uh, it gives you an idea of what the inevitable was in 1993. Have you ever borrowed a book from thousands of miles away across the country? Just without stopping for directions or sent someone a fax from the beach you will and the company that'll bring it to you AT&T thank you Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation uh, a reminder on these question cards uh, Kevin Kelly is not filtering the questions tonight. Kevin Kelly is answering the questions tonight. So Alexander Rose uh, will be peering at these things in the dark in the front row, uh, trying to read them. Legibility counts and briefness counts. That's what gets to the stage. And I'm up here reading them, trying to uh, listen to Kevin at the same time. And uh, short and readable is good. What happens if you apply long-term thinking to fast-moving digital technology? 
The answer is Kevin Kelly. Good evening. So I want to talk a little bit about where technology is going. And a lot of what is coming is really not at all predictable. But there's a certain aspect that is. And I wanted to dwell on that. I think that there is a tilt to technology that comes from the fact that these are physical systems and that there's a bias in the way that the circuits and electrical wires and chips work. And that bias makes reoccurring patterns. And these patterns form a general direction into things. And we can look at these long-term directions, which are, in some senses, inevitable, but the particulars are not. The specifics are not. So we would have a kind of a large form, like a quadruped, that is inevitable in biology and in the mechanical world, but the specific zebra is not. The particular species is not. And so you can think of this as sort of almost like a rain falling on a valley coming down, and the path of a particular drop as it goes down the valley towards a river, that pathway is at all not predictable. It's inherently random. But the general direction is inevitable, which is downward. And that kind of a gravity, that pull, is what I'm talking about. And, and then, so, so we could say in a certain sense that the large forms of telephones were inevitable, but the iPhone was not. Or that the internet was inevitable, but Twitter was not. So there are 12 of these kind of trends that I've kind of um, um, managed to bring together, but they're kind of braided into each other. And those forms, or could be dissected in many different ways. So the 12 are kind of arbitrary in some, in some fashion or another. And uh, I wanted to talk about them because they're all kind of interdependent on each other. They feed each other. They're kind of self-supporting. And um, so I wanted to talk about those 12 as quickly as I can because there's 12 of them. And so the first one is, is becoming. And becoming is uh, the general state that we're all in right now. We're all moving from something to something else. We're becoming something. And that has now been applied to the technological world as well. And so the large form shift that we've seen in the past couple of decades is this movement from solid things, uh, physical things, tangible things, <coughs> nouns that are being made soft, that they're being... In there's a move to the dematerialized world, that the world of the soft, the world of verbs, the world of process. And so we're moving from products to services. And that's, that's been a general shift. And that shift to this new world where things are kind of liquid, this liquidity is actually something that's, that shapes everything and, and in some ways informs all these other trends that I'm talking about. So we have, we have things that are flowing. We have the ability to decentralize things because they're kind of liquid. We have the sense that, that things are always in moving in flux. And so that's the general trend that, that we're all, in a certain sense, in this new liquid environment where, where biology and technology is much softer, more organic, so to speak, much more like a fluid than before. And that means that, in a certain sense, that all of us have to become newbies, perpetual newbies, because we're always being upgraded. We ourselves have to keep upgrading. 
we're always having to learn and unlearn and relearn. And that's the permanent state that we're in. So this sense in which all the things that we're making or in some senses becoming is something that will inform these other trends I'm talking about. I think the most important of these 12 that I'm talking about now is uh, something I call cognifying. That's a word that's an archaic word that means to make smarter. And it's because we don't have any other good words for that, like smartening or and to smartify. So to cognify means to make smarter, to make things more intelligent, to bring to the world of the hard this liquidity of smartness, to, to, to make them more like something that learns, something that adapts, something that changes. And in, in, in a very orderly way. And so we already, of course, have this. We kind of know it also as artificial intelligence. Uh, it's now present working behind the back room, going through x-rays, diagnosing them better than a human doctor could, uh, going through legal evidence better than a human power lawyer could, um, and flying our planes when you fly long distance the human pilots are only flying for seven or eight minutes. The rest of the time, the AI is flying. And in our cars, if you have a modern car today, you have a little tiny AI chip in the brakes, which is braking better than you are. That's what we have right now. That's there. We don't think of it as AI because um, generally these are things that AI is basically something we define as that what we want to do. And once we can do it, it's called machine learning or something else. We now have the example of uh, AlphaGo from Google beating the world's best Go master. So we had a sense in which this is not just brute force. There's something creative here. And recently, Google was teaching its AI, DeepMind, to um, learn how to play video games. If you're playing a video game these days, you're playing against the AI uh, half the time. But they taught it how to learn how to play a video game, which is profoundly different. They taught it. They, by showing it the game, and it learned how to play. So this meta level of learning how to learn is profoundly different. It's artificial smartness. It's artificial learning. And I call it maybe artificial smartness because intelligence has a, a, a lot of baggage around it. To call it artificial intelligence, we mean lots of different things by that. But artificial smartness is something we understand. Your calculator is smarter than you are in arithmetic. GPS unit is smarter than you are in, nav in spatial navigation. Google is smarter than you are in long-term recall. And so the point about those kinds of smartness is that they're not human-like. They're not like, they don't think like the way we think. And so the reason why we want to put AI into a self-driving car is because it's not driving like us. It's not being distracted about worrying about whether it left the stove on. It's, it's, it's only engineered to really focus on driving. And so it's an inhuman-like kind of intelligence. And it doesn't have consciousness. I'm not talking about that. In fact, it may, the fact that it doesn't have consciousness is sort of its benefit. We actually may advertise these things as consciousness-free, <laughs> OK? Because that is actually something you don't want in a lot of AIs. The point is, is that. Our own intelligence has a very poor understanding of what intelligence is. We think of intelligence as, this, as IQ, which is just a one single dimension, a, a single vector, a single 
growing loudness, and you start with something that's very small, like an intelligent IQ of a mouse, of a chimpanzee, of a not very smart person, of the ad, ad, like average person like myself, and then a genius. And that this is getting louder and louder. But in fact, this is completely wrong. Our, our own intelligence is much more like a symphony of different notes played on different instruments. And each of those instruments of cognition is a different type of thinking. There's deductive reasoning, there's spatial reasoning, there's emotional intelligence, there's all these different varieties of intelligences which are composed and, and, and compromised and aggregated into what we call a human intelligence. And that, of course, can vary from person to person that makes it a little different. And then in the animals, of course, it's a similar case where they have a mix, and they may not have as many, they may have some fewer, but in some cases, those particular notes instruments actually may exceed ours in loudness. They may be louder than ours in certain dimensions. A squirrel actually has a long-term memory that exceeds ours because it has to remember where it buries all those nuts. And so when we engineer the intelligences and machines, we're also going to do likewise where we're going to create many new instruments and we're going to gradually add more and more of them. But some of those instruments will again exceed us in particular dimensions. And those are the things that we are going to use them for because they are greater than us in certain dimensions and because they think differently than us. So it's really kind of a misnomer to say something is smarter than humans because what does that mean? It depends on what dimensions you're talking about. I think we're going to undergo a Copernican revolution in the idea of intelligence, which we imagine right now is sort of our intelligence, which is mistakenly called a general purpose intelligence, we believe is kind of there with the universal general problem-solving intelligence. And around us are all these other satellite kind of intelligences. But in fact, we don't have a general purpose intelligence. Our intelligence is very, very specific. It was evolved for our needs as humanoids on this planet. And I think once we begin to populate all the different kinds of intelligences there are, we'll realize that there are many, maybe a million different ways of thinking, maybe hundreds of thousands of different kinds of minds that we could make artificially. And all these different kinds of minds will, in fact, perform different functions. In fact, there may be some problems in business and science that are so difficult for us as humans to solve, they may exceed our capacity as humans to solve, and we may have to solve them with a two-step process where we invent a kind of a mind that can work with us to solve those problems. I think in the long term, what we'll discover is that out in this galaxy of all possible minds, we're way out on the edge. We're not at the center. We're at the edge. We have a very peculiar, distinctive kind of intelligence. And our job right now, in the next century even, is to find and discover and invent as many different kinds of thinking as possible. So I think of these as alien intelligences because their job is to think differently. So the second thing about this cognifying is that it's going to birth basically the second industrial revolution. The first industrial revolution was enabled, I would argue, by something I would call artificial power, which is the ability to take fossil fuels and steam engines and to make a power that far exceeded our ability to use our muscles and animal muscles. So anything built in the agriculture area, era had to be built with human-animal muscle. That lit was very limiting. Now, with artificial power, we could make highways, skyscrapers, railways, factories churning out, endless rows of refrigerators. That's all 
been enabled because of artificial power. And when you drive down the road in your, your car, you're harnessing effectively 250 horses with the flick of a wrist. Okay, that's the power that we have available. And we can actually distribute that power on an electric grid so that every home, farmstead, factory had access to this power and it was utility, a commodity that anybody could purchase just by plugging something in. So even a farmer on a homestead could have a, a great wild idea where you could take something and you could electrify it. You could take like a manual water pump and then instead of using human muscles to pump water, hey, we'll add electricity to it, we'll electrify it. And then you have the electric pump and you multiply that by a thousand, a hundred thousand, a million times and that's the industrial revolution. That's what it was all about was this, this huge explosion that we could make all these things that surround us that we could never have done with our own muscles. And that speed and scope and scale was now available to anybody who wanted to purchase electrical commodity. So now we're gonna do the same thing. We're gonna take that electric pump and we're gonna add artificial mind, artificial intelligence, artificial smartness to it, and we're gonna have smart pumps and we're gonna multiply that by a thousand or a million times. And that's this new era where we can take intelligence. So in addition to the 250 horses that you have in your car, you're now you're gonna add 250 minds to it. And that 250 minds and 250 horses, that is the self-driving car. That's the robo car as it goes across. And so we can imagine like, what would you do if you could have a thousand minds at your disposal 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all the time, doing something. And so this IQ, this, this AI is gonna flow across the cloud in a grid. It's gonna become a commodity, a utility, and anybody could purchase this AI to do what they want it to do, just like you can purchase electricity, okay? And so for me, the formula for the next 10,000 startups is very easy. Take X, add AI. Take, take the most unlikely thing you could possibly imagine and add AI to it. Take like taxi cabs, add AI, Uber, okay? So the more, the more unlikely, I think the more, the more powerful that transformation is going to be. So today, right this minute, right now, right after we're done, you can log on to Google and you can actually purchase some of Google's AI. It's for sale, six cents, 100 hits. It's doing these things like, being able to, you can query it, ask what color the ball is, what color dress does a girl have on, and it'll answer. So, so that's available to anybody right now. And when this happens, as this is happening, uh, there's a concern about our work and what we will do. Uh, when Gary Kasparov, the world's chess champion, lost to Deep Blue, um, the reigning supercomputer at that time, um, he realized that uh, he was at a disadvantage because he did not have access to the same database of every chess move as Deep Blue did. So he started a chess league where you could play any style you wanted to, including playing with AI. And he called that um, Centaurs, where you were working next with AIs and robots. And today, the best chess players in the world are not AIs. They're not humans. They're the team, the centaur of AIs plus humans. And the best doctor, diagnosticians in the world are not Watson, this is Sexer, an AI, nor a doctor. It's the team of doctors plus AI. So 
we're going to be basically paid by how well we work with AIs next to them. Again, their, their intelligence will be complementary in many ways to ours. And so I think the way I would suggest that we enter is to understand that we're going to be working with these things rather than against them. So that's cognifying. This third trend, the third fourth, is interacting. And um, basically, if things are not interacting, we consider them broken these days. So we want and we crave and we're moving towards increasing, increasing interaction with the things that we make. And the ultimate, I think, is in the sense of where we're using gestures, our whole bodies, in the way that um, the Tom Cruise character in the Minority Report was conducting data. It, it, it was no longer just his fingertips. It was no longer interacting in a limited way. It was his entire body. And, of course, we saw that in Iron Man as well. Um, but there's lots of little, little nano-radar chips that can actually read micro-gestures on, on our fingers. Um, and then there's the ultimate interaction, VR. This is me on the right in 1989 with Jaron Lanier trying out virtual reality. And I really believed at that time it was really amazing and transformative. I thought it was going to happen in five years. I was wrong. But it was, it, it was really good. And the problem was simply that that year cost the equivalent of a million dollars today. And what's happened in between that time and now, the, the technology is not that much better, um, but smartphones have made it three orders of magnitude cheaper. So the technology for the VR is the three major components are actually embedded in a smartphone. And when they became commodities, the location and tracking, the gyroscopes, the tiny screens, which are now in your eyepieces, and the pro video processing, that, that has now been borrowed by the VR. And now you can have something that's almost at the consumer level, and it's now good enough to improve. And the thing about VR is, is that it will become, I think, the next platform after smartphones. And there's two kinds, just to kind of clue you in. There's the immersive type, which is where you put the goggles on, it completely closes you, and you're in another world. And then there's the mixed version, the mixed reality, where you have a clear spectacle, and you're looking around, and you see inserted into the vision of the room or outside of the office these virtual objects or virtual people. That's called mixed reality. And mixed reality is actually uh, the more technologically challenging to do. If you can do mixed reality, you can actually do virtual reality just by painting the glass black. Okay? And so if you can do one, a mixed reality can do the other. And mixed reality is, is, has tremendous potential in terms of uh, education where you're understanding how a heart works. Maybe you're making, designing virtual objects that you can actually walk around and, and, and handle. Or, or you can have virtual screens. And this is Microsoft's vision, where you are populating every, your cubicle with as many screens as you want and also virtual colleagues. Of course, we now know what <laughs> augmented reality looks like. Uh, we can see that we don't even need goggles in a certain sense. We can actually use a 3D positioning of the phone. And so there's going to be many varieties of this idea of mixing in, taking the digital world and the physical world and embedding the two together. And that's a great, great example of sort of where we're going with that. And the other thing that we've discovered is not just how you see, 50% of the experience is coming from your hands, your ears, your skin, 
the other parts of your body. It's, it's a tactile thing. We believe in reality, not just because of what we see, but because of what we feel. And um, what this happens, and this, this was a surprise to me as I was trying this out, is that when you're in these things, you actually feel something. It, you, you, the, the, the assemblage of the sense that you have something real in front of you or that you're a real place is not happening in, in the front of your brain. It's happening much deeper behind, it, deeper in your brain. And that when you leave, you have the sense of not having seen something, but having felt something, having experienced something. And so I think it moves the currency of the internet from this world of an internet of information and knowledge to this, world, to this internet of experiences, where the experiences become the currency. And, and, and it's not just dangerous experiences that you couldn't have by yourself, but it's, it's the idea that there are some experiences like the presence of somebody next to you uh, in, in, in a hospital or seeing a demo right in front of you and being able to, to move your hands around to feel it. These things change the nature of how we know things. And that's, the, that's what we're getting with this virtual reality. It's not the fact that it's, it looks real. It's the fact that it actually feels real to us. And I think that in a sense, because when we have virtual presences, I was able to try some um, telepresences where actually I felt as if that person was there, even though I intellectually knew they could not be. And so I think VR is going to become one of the most social of all the social media. It's, it's not, I mean we're going to spend a lot of time hanging out, sharing experiences, downloading experiences, creating experiences with other people, and we'll be shocked by how, how social this is. That telepresence is, is something that I'm willing to pay for, and I think it's going to be coming fairly soon, where, where you're not just seeing a person like they see on Skype, but you actually feel as if that person's there, and that really enables a whole level of communication that we don't have right now. So the social aspect, I think, is going to be huge. The fourth trend, I think, the fourth force is, is this move that once we have this liquidity, that flowing of things, that we can actually change the nature of how we think we possess them. So uh, this was noted by uh, someone else, but they noted that um, Uber is the largest taxi cab company in the world does not own any cars. Facebook is the world's largest media company. It doesn't own any content. Alibaba is the world's largest retailer. It doesn't own any inventory. And Airbnb is the world's largest lodging company and owns no real estate. So there's something happening about this nature of ownership. And I think what's happening is, is that oftentimes if things are liquidity and liquid enough, if they can flow fast and immediately, then having access to them can often be better than owning them because owning has a whole bunch of responsibilities that are often um, overwhelming the benefits. And so we've moved into uh, an arena where um, almost very few people buy movies anymore or buy music or buy books or games if you have access to all of them anytime you want it. And Part of it is having the access to all, that's necessary, and anytime you want is also um, very fundamental. But there's a general drift in that direction where the benefits of being able to access things trumps the benefits of owning them. And the other advantage of actually seeing uh, uh, what was formerly a product like a car as a service that you have access to, like transportation, is that there's 
many more ways to turn something into a service than there is to make it into a product. That, there, that there's sort of a, a greater fungibility, a, a greater diversity in the ways in which we can turn things into something that you access rather than just something you purchase. And so as we think about transportation, Uber is only one. There's five or 10 other variations where you could have, you could drive people's cars instead of having them drive you. You could um, pull them up. You could, you could reverse, have a, uh, a reverse auction for uh, getting the ride. So there, there are many other alternatives that are enabled by the fact that we made something into this service that you access. And that's, of course, is the demand economy, is, is that you're an infinite number of possibilities of take something and try to see about what would happen if you moved it from a product into a service. So sharing is something we know about. I don't want to say too much about it because it's, we're, we're filled with it. We're, we're surrounded by talk about it. But there's several things I wanted to suggest about this notion that we are increasing the amount of stuff that we share over time. And if we looked into 30 years into the future, we can imagine us sharing more and more and more. What I think is that we're still, we haven't hit peak sharing yet. We're still at the beginning of the sharing meter in terms of the amount of things that we're going to share, the reasons that we're going to share, and the ways that we're going to share it. And when I say sharing, what I really mean is collaborating, is cooperating. That's, that's the value. And that's what this technology is bringing to us. We're inventing new ways to collaborate and cooperate at levels and speeds and in dimensions that were never before possible. If you think about Facebook 1.5 billion participants, yes, they're just sharing photos and, and, and gossip, but it's the fact that you have 1.5 billion people collaborating at some, uh, on something together. And that was simply not possible before. And we'll go further from that. And so when we talk about sharing, it's not just about this idea of like swapping things. It's, it's the idea that we're making tools that enable us to cooperate and collaborate in ways that we simply could not before. And cooperation is really the whole stepping stone of civilization and, and human, uh, and human in innovation and progress, which is increasing the ways in which we can uh, cooperate, increasing the complexity. So I would say... Anything that we can imagine that can be collaborated on and cooperated on, that's what we're going to do. It will be as we go forward. And part of the opportunity that people have is to think about ways in which you could harness 8 billion people to do something big and long now, maybe do something that took a long time, more than a generation to do. Or we wanted to do it really fast. Or we wanted to do it in dimensions that we don't even think about right now. So this collaboration on a planetary scale is, I think, where we're moving to in this sharing dimension. And I have to mention uh, blockchain, which is a very complicated thing to explain. It means simply that you have a shared ledger, a shared way of doing accounting that's not centralized. And there are so many, many things that we could do with that um, in terms of doing contracts, in terms of doing business, in terms of distributing trust that was not possible. And I only highlight that as, as, a, as a single example of ways in which we're going to figure out how we can share and collaborate and even distribute um, th things that, like trust that we had never been able to do before. And, and that's where we're going with this 
increasing sharing. So um, screening. Uh, you know, we have a big screen right here. Uh, there's little screens in everybody's pockets. Uh, if you fly, there's a screen on the back of every seat. Um, there's even, in China especially, there's buildings have been turned into screens at night, and even during the day, Times Square. I think in the goodness of time, almost every flat surface that we make will eventually be covered with some kind of screen because it may be as cheap as paint. Um, and there's flexible screens, uh, in particular, and they're getting thinner. And so when people talk about like an e-book, we normally think of something like a Kindle, a flat plank. But in fact, there's no reason why you couldn't have an e-book that was made up of um, thin pages. And each of those pages was a screen and that you bound them together into a leather binding that was really beautiful. And after you finished reading the book, you would thump it on your thigh and it would turn into another book. And so you still have all the highly evolved navigations that we would have from a printed book, but they're in an e-book. So there's nothing to say that screens have to be flat and rigid. They can be on our clothes. They could be uh, even floating in air. But the point is, is that we are... Um, moving to the screen, and every screen that we look at is looking back at us. Okay, so it's looking at uh, the, some of the Samsung Galaxy, I think, 6s have uh, a return camera that looking at your eye gaze, they can tell where you're looking, which then can transfer into like a heat map of, say, a website or a movie or whatever you are staring at, and it's telling you where your attention is. In fact, we can even go further. There's a couple companies that um, have software that can detect your emotion to these 26 or 24 emotions, and they can tell whether you're distracted, whether you're perplexed, whether you're frightened, whether you're engaged, whether you're bored, and they can adjust the content to that in many, many ways. And so it's, it's, like, a, it's like talking to a person a little bit in the sense that you're having a conversation, you're changing what you say, depending on their reaction, it's, it's two-way, it's, two it's conversational. And so these screens, again, will interact with us by looking back at us, and they will um, be part of this larger movement where we have been people of the book. The Western culture was basically centered on text. So we had the Constitution, we had the Bible, we had books of law, and so this, this centering on authors and the same root as authority was the foundation of basically Western civilization and has produced an incredible blossoming of great stuff. But now we're moving away from being people of the book to becoming people of the screen. And the screen has a wholly different dynamic. It's this liquidity. It's this thing where... The, uh, information is flittering across as pixels. They, they're, they're never ending streams. They're just uh, ephemeral. They're, they're, they're not fixed. Works are not finished. Like Wikipedia, they are ongoing. Everything has to be upgraded. There is a sense in which uh, things are not closed and they're open-ended. And there's all these dimensions where we, again, have moved from the fixed precision and the authority of a book. And so we, we, when we wanted to know what was true, we went to a book, we went to authority, and now we're people of the screen and we have screens and things are fluid and they're messy and, and it's, they're relativistic and they're open and they're subjective. And so when we try to find out what's true, it's actually a, a much different process and we have to, in some ways, 
assemble the truth ourselves. We have to, we have, to have a networked idea of truth where any fact is, you have to, so right now the problem on the internet is for every fact there's a counterfact, for every expert there's a counter-expert, for every bit of information there's some anti-information. And so we have to understand that truth is something that's more networked and that you can depend on it because there's other nodes that are set themselves depending on other nodes that are reliable because they're depending on other nodes that are reliable. And so there's a very different way of assembling truth. And that's one of the many consequences that we have from moving from the authority of books to the fluidity of screens. So, and as you see, part of that is the fact that flows, everything is flowing more and more. And um, we're kind of in the third age of uh, the computing metaphor. So the first one was you know, with a desktop and, and everything was modeled after the office. And so we had files and file folders and, and the desktop. And, and then we moved to the second one, which is forget that we have, we'll have uh, the web, we'll have pages and links. And this whole thing is this, this spidery, amorphous uh, with no edges and that's, and that's the model that we understood that. But now we're moving into the third age, this third metaphor, and that's the streams and the flows. And so we have Facebook streams and streams of music and we have Netflix streams and we've got the streams across the news banners and we've got uh, update streams and um, everything is streaming uh, across and everything's ephemeral. There are services sort of, of flow and things are flowing and data is flowing. And that's the metaphor, that, the regime that we're in now. And so that flowing is also what flows is data. And so data is forever flowing. And that those flows of data is the new model. And that only will increase in this liquid world. If everything is flowing, if all, if all this data is going, then we're going to track it. I think anything that can be tracked will be tracked. Um, and that's sort of scary. And I want to refer back to the virtual reality. Virtual, uh, if, if you can think of our phone as a surveillance device that we purchase and carry around voluntarily, then VR worlds are total surveillance states that we're going to enter into by ourselves, okay? Because in order to actually do VR, all your emotions have to be tracked. And the more sophisticated these VR worlds are, reading your micro-expressions so that your avatar in there has the same micro-expressions, which is what they're doing right now, your total gestures movements so that you have this sign language and you can move things around and your avatar has the same body language, they all have to be captured. And if they're captured, they're tracked. And so right now, the, the VR companies are not doing much with that data except trying to make your avatar, but eventually they will. And so these are totally surveilled world. And the kind of tracking that would be very expensive to do in a real world is going to be very cheap and easy and inevitably done in the virtual world. So just to give you a heads up, that's where we're going. And I was involved with starting a movement called the Quantified Self, where we were looking at how people would track themselves not just for health reasons, but for productivity reasons, for memories, for, um, uh, for many reasons. The Apple Watch is, is one example of a kind of now commercial quantified self device. But the idea is, is that you would, 
as these sensors would get cheaper and cheaper, uh, you would fill your world, your daily life with these kinds of tracking, and we would be able to track anything that could be tracked. And that somewhere today, someone is tracking anything that can be tracked. This has not yet reached the mainstream, but the potential benefits are immense, even for health. What you really want to have is have a life log where you are tracking all your bio particulars, all, all the important things about your biology and your health for all of your life so that you would have a, a, a normalization. You would know what your normal was because it turns out that our normals are not the same. Your normal is not my normal. My normal changes depending on time of day, time of year, the season of life. And we, we and all, by the way, all our bodily functions are all signatures. They're all uniquely identifiable, including your heartbeat. And so we can capture all this and we can use that for many things, but among them is this dream of a personalized medicine. If you actually know what your normal is, you can actually formulate a therapy, a treatment that's really specific to you. And um, you know, several people have ideas about how that would, would be done. The important thing is, is that it's done by us tracking ourselves. But of course, it's not just us tracking ourselves, we're being tracked by our friends who are tagging us on Facebook. We're being tracked by companies as we voluntarily surrender our information where we are with Pokemon. That's all being tracked. And I think it's inevitable that we're gonna be tracking more and more. I see almost no counterforce to the fact that in 50 years from now, we will be tracking more of our lives. Um, so I think that's pretty inevitable, but what's not inevitable is how we shape it the particulars. I suggest a, a, a stance of covalence as one way to domesticate this tracking. And that covalence means is that we are tracking the trackers we watch, who watches us, that there is, rather we turn something that's asymmetrical where they are tracking me, I don't know what they're tracking, I don't know what they're doing with it, I don't know if it's correct, uh, I don't know who they're sharing it with, um, I can't correct it or, or hold them accountable, and I get no benefits. That is very, very, very uncomfortable to us. But the other version of that, where I uh, know who's tracking me, I am tracking them, I know what they do with the information, I know whether it's correct, I can correct it, I can hold them accountable, and I get some direct benefit. We are familiar with that because we've evolved for 100,000, if not a million years, just in that state. We evolved in very small groups of people where we knew everything about each other. So that we know how to do. What we want to do is then is restore some of that symmetry to this tracking so that we can, if the cops are gonna film us, which I think they should, we should be filming the cops. We should have access to that, all both sides. And so that sense in which we restore some of the covalence, we're, 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 we're mutually surveilling each other, we're mutually tracking each other, is really, to me, the way that we can actually make this inevitable tracking more civilized. And the second thing I would say about that is that there is a, a coupling between two, two dimensions of, of, of this tracking and the data. There's one dimension, and I would say it's, it's, it's simply an axis where on one end there's uh, your, your private and, you know, you're private. On the other end, you're transparent. I guess it's on your screen, it's the other way around. So transparent and private. And um, 
so so uh, but but that 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 axis of of whether you are revealing everything about yourself or not is actually coupled to another axis, and that's the axis of personalization and generic. So at one end is um, you are being treated as a number. You're, there's nothing known about you. You're just an average thing. You have nothing unique about you. And so you get the treatment of just being a, a number. At the other end is, is that you are being personalized and, and you are being treated as a very unique individual with your wants, your desires, your genetic makeup, your background, your history, the whole thing. And so I want people to treat me as an individual. I want, I want my friends to know about me, treat me as an individual. I want companies to treat me as an individual. I want my government to treat me as an individual, to be aware of my situation, to, to, to treat me as an individual. And in order to do that, you basically have to reveal yourself in some capacity. The reason why you have friends is you've revealed yourself to them. They know you as an individual. If you don't want to, and I think we should have a choice about this slider, then you're going to be treated in a generic way. And so the thing is that these two are coupled. So if you want to maximize personalization, then you kind of have to maximize, maximize transparency. If you're, if you're happy and prefer to be private in that sense of, of not known, then you have to accept a generic treatment. And here's the thing that we didn't know about ourselves, is that when we give people that choice to move the slider with technology, they always push it to that side, to the personalization, to the transparency side. And so the, the way I flippantly summarize this is that vanity trumps privacy, okay? Who knew? So that's something we didn't know about ourselves, but that seems to be where we're going. Now, we may change our mind later on when we see the price of it, but I think where we're going is, is, is that uh, the re there is a reason why we are tracking allow a lot of the tracking is that we get some benefits from that. And those benefits are basically be the personalization. So um, remixing is another long-term drive, a trend. And that has to do with the fact that when things become liquid, when they become digital, they are now able to be reduced and unbundled into their native elements, their native parts, and then they can be recombined. So if you think of something like a newspaper, a newspaper was actually a very complex product that actually had many different components, headlines, obituaries, uh, sports scores, uh, news stories, uh, classified ads, book reviews. There was, there was a ton of things into it. And when they became digital, people could basically unravel them and unbundle them into Craigslist that took all the the classified, and someone else took all the, the headlines or the sports scores or the gossip. And each of those became something into itself that was added to other primitives and then remixed. And then later on, they were, themselves were unbundled. And that's not just true for newspapers. You could kind of unbundle, unbundle all the things that a bank did. Once you made it more fungible and liquid, you would say, well, the bank is doing many things. It has uh, loans. It's giving interest. It's... it's forming mortgages, and so those could all be unbundled. And you could even do it with cars, in the sense that there's aspects of cars, cars as a product, cars as a service that could be unbundled. And generally what's happened is, is that we're going to, we're kind of coming down to, to, to the elements. It's like if you want to do chemistry, 
the best thing to do is to understand that everything is an element and be able to reduce things to an element that you could then recombine to different compounds. And that's sort of what we're doing with this digital era is, is that we're understanding that every product and every service is in some ways a, a complex remixing, a recombination, and that this digital technology allows us to reduce things to their primitive element and then recombine them. And recombination actually turns out to be the central engine of technological progress. I mean, the progress based on technology, the wealth based on technology. Um, two economists, Brian Arthur and Paul Romer, <clears throat> independently and separately have their own theories about how most of the advances in technological society come from not, not inventing new things, but recombining the old things in many different ways. And that when you try to make a formula, or I should say a model of the economy, of the modern economy, the only way you can account for the fact that it grows is, is the fact that you can kind of recombine existing things. So the growth that we see in the 200 years, the economic growth, is fundamentally due to the fact that we're recombining these. And what's happened is that the digitalization has accelerated the ability to reduce things to their elemental primitives and then to recombine them in many, many, many ways. And that will only continue into the future. Anything that can be unbundled, anything can be rebundled. Filtering is the other aspect of this, which is that we are making so many things, uh, so many new things that it actually exceeds our ability to pay attention to them. And wherever attention flows, that's where money goes. The, it took a long time for people to understand that all the attention that was going to the internet was would be where the money went, but that's what's happening. It's going away from TV and other things towards the internet because that's where the attention is. And so we are um, dealing with the fact that we have an attention economy. And um, it's remarkable that we give away our attention for nothing to watch, to watch a, um, an advertisement. And I'm suggesting that one of the disruptions I could see coming is that we might actually start to charge for our attention, charge to watch an ad, charge to read someone's email. And that when that does is that you, it kind of changes the dynamics and takes out the, the advertising agencies and the other middle people and you have, this, you have the possibility of a kind of a peer-to-peer. -peer. Whereas what you're doing is you're gonna use the influence maps to kind of identify people that have a lot of influence and they may not be necessarily people who are rich or people who are famous, they actually could be uh, a girl somewhere who has lots of followers who are following her fashion trend and she has tremendous influence and they would be actually giving her the marketing money directly so that she would influence those rather than going through this idea of advertising. You're, you're sort of, you're distributing in a peer-to-peer -peer way that influence. And you also could pay people to create ads and they could be rewarded if those ads went virally um, and, and so they're not going to make ads for Fortune 500 companies, but like Google AdSense, they make, make ads for people who right now could never afford to make an ad, like mom and pop Chinese restaurant or something. You could have people making ads and those ads went virally and you would get credit back if someone clicked on it or watched it. So you could have a way in which you distributed virally all the ads then they were also being paid the people who, who made those ads. So this is... I'm very briefly giving you an idea of the way in which even advertising could be decentralized and uh, made more liquid and um, distributed 
with this technology, just as an example of how we're managing our attention and how we're using these filters to, to manage them. The second to last one is questioning. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of, I think if you want an answer today, you ask a machine, right? You, you go to the machines to answer questions. It used to be very, very expensive to get anything done. I, it, it's very hard for us to even imagine, remember 20 years ago if we're that old, 30 years ago if we're that old, what life was like when there was no internet and you, and you had to go to a library to ask a question. It was, you, most questions were never asked because they could not be answered. Um, now answers are free, and what's becoming more valuable are questions. Because every, every time you, you ask a question and you get an answer, uh, uh, every answer sort of generates prompts to new questions. And if you, if you map that out, if we, if we figure that we're actually increasing the number of questions exponentially, but if every answer generates two new questions, then you have something where the questions are being generated faster than the answers. And so basically what we're doing is we're expanding ignorance. Okay, but I think that's actually a good thing. I think that's actually a good thing because it's in ignorance. Ignorance is opportunity. Ignorance is often profit. Ignorance is where we're going to live in this world of, of much more uncertainty because we're going faster and faster. And I think what, what happens is that while answers become cheaper and cheaper, a good question becomes more and more difficult, more and more important, more and more productive. And Machines are really good at answers, and humans are going to be really good at questions for a very long time. And I think figuring out and being taught how to ask a good question is really going to be what education is about. And I think learning the art of questioning is sort of what science is about. It's what innovation is about. It's a way of a what if. What if we, do, what if we try this? That, those are all questions. Exploration is a kind of a question. What happens? What's down here? Where does this go? And so these kinds of things where efficiency is no longer important and we have something that's much more open-ended, not as efficient, not as certain, that's where we're going to be living. So good questions, a good question is something that generates not only a good answer, but even more and better questions. So it's recursive a little bit like that. I think we're just at the beginning of where we're going. I, I think that we're just at the very, very start of um, the first hour of day one. I think when people look back to now, 2016, they'll be, they'll be amazed that we thought we had the internet now because compared to where we're going, we don't even have it. I think um, the web, which is one of the biggest, I think in retrospect will be seen as one of the greatest inventions that we've made in, in, in the last half century, was not even invented 30 years ago. Um, that's, that's a new thing. Social media is less than 2,000 days old. We're just, we're, we're, we're just, we're just really at the beginning of all this. And um, there are no experts in AI or VR or attention uh, technology. We, uh, there's lots of billions of dollars being spent on AI. There's lots of very smart people working on it. But compared to where we'll be in 30 years, there are no experts. VR is the same thing. We have no idea how VR works. We have no idea what will work in terms of telling a story in VR. We're, we're just really, really clueless right now. In 30 years, we'll realize that there were no experts. So, so we're at this kind of a stage right now where we, if we think about the next 
25 years or so into, say, 2040, and the people will look back now, they'll, 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 they'll realize, they'll, they'll, actually, I think they're going to be very envious about us now because they'll realize that, that we're at this moment when it's never been easier to, to, to do something, and yet there were all these tremendous opportunities ahead of us of AI. Take X and add AI. You know, virtual reality is completely unknown. You, you, all the easy things to find are right before us, and we're going to find them in the next 10 years. Uh, there's just an incredible opportunity that's opening up, and not just us in, in this audience, but around the world. And that opportunity is, is all before us. And so they, I think they're going to be envious. that to, they, they said, only if I was alive and well back in 2016, what I could have done. So I think that the, in that world of 2040, that the, that the greatest products of that era, that the ones that will be really dominating their lives, haven't even been invented yet today. It's, they don't exist. So that means that you're not late. So thank you. Not late, eh? Yeah. By the way, you're right on your time. I try. Uh, hey, long-term thinker, 10,000 years <laughs> and all that. What's this about 30 years? <laughs> uh, I think uh, I there was something that I think I coined called the um, uh, Moscarope. Uh, the Moss Grow Point, which is that middle-aged people tend to imagine a future that will happen before they die, <gasps> and so uh, so that may be part of it. Is is that uh, maybe I'm I'm interested in trying to describe something that I could possibly live to, but not beyond because it's sort of outside of my experience. Hmm. So younger folks here get to do 50 or 60 years. Yeah, right. They, they, the they can do that. Do the that one. Term. Okay. You're on. <laughs> uh, as I recall, you keep track of your actuarial team. Yes. Uh, when do you plan to die? So, so <laughs> I actually uh, have a little thing on my, my computer right at the top, and it's a countdown clock to my expiration date. And um, it's, it's, it, I went to the actuarial tables and looked up the statistical likelihood of, of how long I would live based on someone born when I was born and where I live. And then I turned that into a number of days, and I set that into the clock, and so it's counting down, and I th it was 5,770 days left. And so... Um, what that, year is that? What year was that? Wait, will it be? Oh, that was, I think that was, I think it was 72. Uh-huh. But what year are you planning to die? Oh, okay. Well, so that's... Uh, I don't know. I haven't figured out the number of... But, but the point is... Taking it down day by day, not year by year. That's no, it's, it's by day by day. So I know how many days. And so that's very, very focusing for me is because oh. I have 5,770 days to do all the stuff that I need to do and want to do, and that's not very many days. Of course, if I live longer, then that's all bonus. That's all gravy. Right. But still, uh, who knows? And so I'm, I'm living... I'm, I'm, I'm counting, I'm not counting those days, I'm trying to maximize those days. And yet you're not frantic. No, 
but I think I should be. Interesting. Is this somehow encouraged being relaxed about things? That you're not sort of worrying and wondering and you've got a date certain so you just <laughs> right. schedule accordingly? Yeah, I, I I I think I think it's it's just uh, you know it's, it's just a reminder of your own mortality. I think it's good to to have before you, and um, I think it's really good when I get an invitation to do something. I can look at that clock. Right, and say, right, right. No. <laughs> <laughs> Some questions. Andy Lee asks: uh, Will AI want to own or access human intelligence? This is I think you know looking at sir, what's the interaction coming between? Yeah. Our IQ and these others. Yeah, it's 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 a it's it's a um, it's a common worry. I think there's, hmm. I think I think it's a the possibility is something we shouldn't. It's more than zero, but I think it's unlikely. And I, and I think it's because um, I, it's I, I think some of these kinds of things would be even very hard. To program into it. In other words, if you gave someone the assignment to do that, it would actually be very, very difficult to achieve. And I think it's even harder for it to kind of happen on its own. So um, I, I, I think there's not much reason for us to want that to happen. And, and therefore, because we're still engineering these things, mm -hmm. um, it'll be difficult for it to happen on its own. You think our own intelligence will, as it has before, adapt to these technologies, and so what we call human intelligence will actually be itself quite different? In yes, I think that's much more likely is that we change our own intelligences mm -hmm. over time because, because we've been changing our bodies over time already. So mm -hmm. I mean, you and I are manufactured beings. We invented humanity. We mm -hmm. invented ourselves. The reason why we have this tension with technology is because we are both the masters and the slaves. We are both, we created humanity and then of course we are the created. Mm -hmm. We are the creators, we, we shape, we make the tools and the tools shape us. And that's inescapable. That's in the, that's in the very basic nature of humanity is that we will always have that tension in another thousand years, we'll still be wrestling with the fact that we are both masters of this technology and, it, and we are slaves to it at the same time. And so that, that will never go away. And, and I think that's a cause of a lot of our own concerns and hand-wringing and worry about technology is that, that we're caught in that, in that two-faced two aspect of it is, is that we're both the parent and the child at the same time. Well, this caughtness is interesting. It's in your book you say that you used to upgrade as late as you could because yeah. of the nuisance factor of upgrading. But then the nuisance factor grew of not upgrading. Right. And so is this becoming a situation for basically all humanity that nobody gets to opt out? Yeah. Do, do we all have to upgrade? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, the, the last speaker, a long now speaker on the stage was George Dyson, and I thought he had a really great... Um, mm -hmm. Uh, dichotomy, which is he said, one of the central decisions that we have before us is, do we remain one species or many? Mm -hmm. And um, so there. So, do you so, have a view on that? Well, I mean, I think if 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 mandatory upgrade is part of the the prospect of humanity, I think there's a whole Amish contingent that's just going to say, under no way is, <laughs> is me or my descendants ever going to 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 modify our genes or whatever. And mm -hmm. so you you have you have a separation. Well, they're very selective. They use the web and right. So, yeah. 
Um, two questions that kind of relate. Alyssa asks, uh, what does the dominance of access ownership mean for artists? And David Grossoff asks, what's your advice to new and future librarians um, of Congress and so on to capture and organize uh, all this kind of information? How do libraries change? How do artists change? And then these yeah, the, 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 the prospect of ownership, I mean, I, I skated over that very fast because there are some benefits to ownership. Um, that maybe make it worth for some people. And of course, if we're using things, somebody has to own it. So you can't have a world where there's no ownership at all. Um, so I, I think uh, in the intellectual property, I think the idea of owning ideas is problematic. And I think mm -hmm. the idea of even owning data is problematic because it's very intangible. Um, so I, I would like to see a second version, a second, uh, an, another attempt at revisioning what an intellectual a real intellectual property system would be um, based around uh, and intangibles like ideas and data, because I, I think we're very far from it, and, it's, and we don't have a good understanding of it. And so the, the issues of copyright are all baked into that. Um, but I do, I do think that this shift is, is, will, will have an effect on our idea of capitalism, which is founded on the idea of ownership. And even our, our, our status of, of wealth, what we consider wealth, we often attribute to people who own lots of stuff. And if and they weren't- A lot of we, economics is based on scarcity and we're talking about floods. Of right, exactly. So you have this, you have the economics around abundance and access rather than ownership. That, that can change um, how we view uh, how things work. Kirsten B. asked, what are the main opposing forces you see impeding the forces you outlined? So these 12 yeah. big driving forces grinding away. Yeah. What are the 12 big don't you go there forces? Yeah. So uh, I, I, I'll, I'll get to that. But one thing I will say is I, I, I'm by temperament very optimistic. And I don't talk a lot about the, 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 the downsides or the negatives. And, and I would say several things about it. One is that um, every, the more powerful a technology is, the more powerfully it can be abused. So powerful technologies like AI will be abused. But uh, there will be a criminal underside to these. There will be people using these for harm. But what's interesting to me is that even those, those uses will follow the same general trends, and meaning that these, these drives, these, these gravities, these forces apply to even when we are abusing them and using them for harm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so that's one thing. The, the question about what could stop these things, what's the counterforce that could mm -hmm. derail them? I think fundamentally, like if Moore's law stopped, I think that would have a huge impact. If, if this relentless doubling of power and halving of costs every 18 months was to stop, if we were to run out of that, I think that would have a huge effect on the continuation of these trends. Because we got to taking that rate of change as a constant. Exactly. It's an assumption. It's mm -hmm. built into this. I mean, it would be I mean, we would be like stupefied if, uh, <laughs> if, if computers actually started to get more expensive and slower every year, right? I mean, so. <laughs> That's quite a concept. Well, related to that, uh, an unnamed person asks, what about the future are you actually worried about? Yeah. Which is a little different than counterforce. It is, it is. And um, I'm not worried about the, the robots taking over and killing us, but I am worried about um, other more near-term aspects of, of artificial intelligence. And um, uh, there's, there's several. One, one is, um, uh, I think there's a bunch of groups right now working on trying to put ethics into 
AI systems, particularly the self-driving cars. Most of the car companies have groups that are trying to decide that. And it turns out that um, in order to program a self-driving car to have the right ethics and the kinds of problems they have is you're driving down the road, it's driving down the road, there's a crash, and it has to swerve one way or the other. If it swerves this way, it, it protects the passenger. If it swerves this way, it hits um, uh, pedestrians, and so, or vice versa. And, and so the point is, is that we have to make that decision now. And um, so in order, and that's an ethical decision. It doesn't really have a right answer, but we have to kind of figure out what the answer is. And in order for us to program in our ethics and moralities, we have to have a very clear understanding of them, and we don't. Mm -hmm. We actually have very loose, vague, inconsistent, shallow ethics. Mm -hmm. And so in order to, to do that, we actually have to get better at it ourselves. And I think in the long run, the AIs will teach us. As we try to teach them, we will learn how to be better ethically. But that's a challenge that we have is, is, is actually not conveying it, but actually figuring out what our ethics are, what our moralities are. And then the second place that, I, that I'm a little worried about that is, is that I, I wonder if we have a world in which there are beings that have any kind of embodiment that, that are serving us, whether um, treating them, if we would treat them as slaves, whether or not they're slaves or not, just treating them is, could be <clears throat> corrosive to us, to our spirit. And so I, I don't have an answer, but, I, but that, that is something that I worry about, is whether we would have, we would have all these things. And uh, if you've seen the videos of the Boston Dynamics robots, the four-legged robots that I showed up there, people kicking them as a way to show that they're stable. We cringe mm -hmm. at that because we feel that. And so we may, we may have feelings for these things that might, uh, that might affect us in ways that we're not really ready for. So I worry a little bit about that too. Well, society sort of learns by <laughs> mistakes and catastrophes. Uh, what ones do you see in this uh, 30 years that you're looking at might occur that would be so educational if they don't just do us in. <laughs> um, I, 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 I think we're at a very dangerous place with cyber war and, and uh, AI's mm -hmm. military, militarization of AI yeah. um, because we have no rules. We have a whole set of rules in the Geneva Convention mm -hmm. about ordinary war. It's kind of weird but we have these rules about what's yeah. Yeah, there was a period when nuclear war first came along, right. and then Herman Kahn had to do thinking about the unthinkable, and that was the beginning of applying right. math and rules to nuclear war. And we don't have that right now. We don't have, what's, we don't have any consensus on what's acceptable. Is it okay to take out the banking system of another country? Is, is that permissible? Is, is, or is it okay to, to disrupt uh, the, the, you know, um, the, the trains? Is it okay to disrupt um, you know, maybe just... Um, something like uh, the traffic lights. Mm -hmm. You know, the, we, we don't have any kind of a sense of what's acceptable and what's not. And right now, the US, Russia, China, uh, Iran, uh, Israel, are all conducting cyber war. We, they're, they're not talking about it because nobody knows the rules, but they're actually are, is conducting uh, defensive, offensive uh, attacks. And I think that may, there may be some disaster a dam being broken or a lot of civilians dying before it may take that mm -hmm. to actually have people decide, well, okay, that's, that's not okay. You can't do that. And we will, 
I mean, being able to verify these things are very difficult. So there has to be a whole, a whole procedure for, for being able to verify that this nation state is not doing that. I, I think we're nowhere near that. And, 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 I, and my worry is that it will take a big disaster before the forces are brought on to make that happen. That's kind of international agreements or you know, something like the Internet Engineering Task Force? I think maybe what like is it that sorts that stuff out? I think we need a world government. A hush fell over the audience. <laughs> uh, say a little more about that. Uh, yeah. Um, world, uh, uh, I, I think if you have planetary problems, you need a planetary governance and government. Mm -hmm. I think uh, we have not just global climate issues, we have immigration issues. Th these are beyond, mm -hmm. these are planetary scales. We need to have, uh, you know, like even like the recent South Seas uh, uh, you know the, the tussle over China, like that. That's that's an island. No, it's not an island. It's you know. So it's like, there the, we're at the point where any any other civilization in the galaxy would have a world government, okay? And so, and so you know, Star Trek, right? So that's why we need it. It's it's it's. I I think um, it's an it's an idea that nobody on the left likes, nobody on the right likes, but I think it's a good idea. And and I think that. I have no idea how that's possible. What interests me is, is that how is it even possible to have a representative democracy for 8 billion people? What's the mechanics of that? Does, does that even, does it even conceivable? What would, what, how would that possibly work? So I have no idea how to do it other than I think that we do need it. And um, I think it would be really helpful in tackling some of the biggest problems we have. Well, one can imagine if sort of the best efforts that the nations and these various entities, UN and so on, make in relation to climate change don't add up to actually solving the problem. Right. That some kind of, uh, that would force the kind of governance entity that you're talking about. Right. Um, your first book was pretty biological, out of control. And uh, this book is uh, severely digital. And well, there's a Moore's law of biotech going on that some say is faster than Moore's law and more profound. They're not just talking about the code of communication and computation, the code of life. Right. Um, <laughs> so you know the biotech stuff. How do you think it relates to what you see going on in these digital trends? That's, that's a really good question because I, I should have made a caveat in the beginning that it, my, my book and this talk was really focused on the digital, not on the, not on the biological, not on energy, not on many other futures that are, that are very important. And how the, the, the digital will impact, um, well, well, the kinds of things that, by the way, you are, are tracking very well in using um, current uh, genetic techniques, I think would also severely suffer if it wasn't for Moore's law, right? I mean, if Moore's law stopped, all mm -hmm. that kind of progress that we see mm -hmm. in the biological <coughs> realm would also halt. Oh, and um, so I think they're tied in a sense that mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not that there's the same system, but the tools that we're using, the tools not only of discovery and manipulation, but again, for me, the tools are of collaboration, the, the tools that, that makes the science work, the, the tools of peer review and an exchange of information, all those things are very instrumental in learning because because we are changing how we know things. Mm -hmm. We're changing how we discover things. And those are the 
the meta tools that are that are mostly being propelled by the digital world. So the biological mysteries abound and are profound. We don't know how the brain works exactly. We don't know how our microbiome works. We don't know how the immune system works. Um, and we care deeply in terms of health and everything else. And the code that's running all of that is the, the world's worst spaghetti code. Mm -hmm. uh, and so trying to reverse engineer it, it, it's not. It's just, you know, deep learning, data mining. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and is, is that actually working? I mean, you know, shotgun sequencing was a way to finally be able to get right. the human genome and then ancient genomes and so on. Is that kind of understanding of these previously unknowable but profoundly important to us in all of life systems, is that going to be opening up with these trends, do you think? I, 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 I do think. I mean, going back to the spaghetti code in our own brains, I think that um, <laughs> uh, one, I think one of AI's artificial intelligence's major roles in the next 20 or 30 years will be as a mm -hmm. probe to understand what our own brains do, not by opening them up, but by trying to model them, trying to replicate them. In other words, the hmm. I, I, I th this is what I call the third way of knowledge. So there's the humanities, which kind of figure out how things are by by uh, looking at human expression, by going in inside themselves, by um, doing what artists do. And then there's the scientists. The second way, the scientists who do, who run experiments and who who who, who probe by by trial and error. And then there's the third group, which is the nerds, mm -hmm. the technolo technologists. And the nerd way is that you investigate something by trying to make something new. Mm -hmm. So the way that you investigate <coughs> intelligence is not to, to to probe it, not to to think about it, but to actually to try to make an artificial intelligence. The way that you study reality. Mm -hmm. It is not by any kind of experiments, but trying to make a virtual reality. The way that you study democracy is you make a virtual democracy. So it's just, there's this, the, way that, the way in which you try and, 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 and probe the, the, the basis of, of, of this state of being is through making something. So that learn by making is the third way. And I think that is what AI and, and, and um, even the role in biology would be which is as, a, as a scope, as a scope to figure out what intelligence is by, by trying to make it in as many different ways as possible. So the maker movement is uh, uh, also with us. It's, right, exactly. It's actually the third culture. It's actually the third way of, of, of knowing. It's mm -hmm. actually the third and very growing, a very important way in which we actually um, you know, render the human condition, which is by making things. And so uh, it's it's a force for for knowledge, for for progress. It's not just people, you know, in their basements with three D printers. It's way beyond that. This is such a whole Earth catalog kind of perspective. <laughs> um, Owen asks: Thirty years from now, what is the role of nature, if uh -huh. any? Uh -huh. So, um, I added the if any. Yeah, right, right. Um, I, 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 I take the, the proposition that some others share, which is that um, the nature of nature in the wild today on this planet is that every single acre 
of it has been affected by uh, humans already. So it has been altered. So, so, so it's already in uh, a, a gardened uh, state of nature. And that what we're, we'll, we'll continue to do that. We'll continue to, to affect it. We'll continue to bring it together with the, the digital, the, the technological realm in some ways. So it's, it's like we're domesticating it. And so that wildness is long, long been transformed into something that we have a hand in and we'll have more of a hand in. And I think that we'll use it to, to make it um, serve um, both us and the other species. And so it's not, I think we want to serve all the living species on the planet and to bring some of them back and add more of them. Um, and, and that that is something that we can actually do. And um, so I think the relationship that technology has to nature is, is in some ways at this point, is to not harm it further and to make it more compatible with our own civilization. So, uh, so, so, I, so, I, so I, I think it is something that, I, I see technology as the seventh kingdom of life that actually has derived from evolution and the same powers. And so it's not antagonistic to life inherently. That it's inherently compatible. That mm. any, we, there's no invention that we, we haven't been able to make greener in a certain sense. And so we can continue to green our technology to make it even more compatible with the biological world. How's all this stuff playing out in terms of cities? Yeah, and, and, and all that. I, I'm, I'm repeating Stuart here, and I, I think that urbanization and concentrating um, people into cities is actually one of the best things we can do for, um, for, the, for the green, the wild, the nature part of it. And, and I see cities as, cities are me, are, are the most complex technology that we've made, even beyond computers, that, that, that they are basically a technological invention, that we're gonna continue to make them, improve them better, that we'll move more people into them, um, and that this digital technology will make them more biological in a certain sense, um, you know, the advances like auto-driven cars and um, smart materials all have promised to help us manage this technology of urbanization, which will increase. And I think that's well, I good increase. for them. I mean, well, you know, the early thought was, well, everybody's just going to go to a beach somewhere yeah. and be online, and that's that. Uh, that didn't work out. Yeah. Um, because I think what we get in cities is opportunities and <laughs> possibilities. And we crave those almost over anything else. I mean, the density gives you that? Just the access to a lot of strange people or what? The, the, yeah. That, that's, and, and, and the fact that, that we have more technology and technology gives us more choices. And so there's more technology and there's more people. And both of those together create more choices. And that's what draws people to the city. I don't think it's necessarily the bright lights. It's the fact that they have choices they did not have back in their beautiful organic gardens in the beautiful hillsides with their strong families. They came because they actually thought that having more choices was more important than those very beautiful things. Now, you travel Asia, and the places you travel in Asia are often the places that are the most sort of traditional and, and ancient yeah. and the, the old village life and so on. Do you see that 
eroding because of all this? And do you agree? Yeah. For how do you see that? Yes, it is. The the villages of Asia are emptying out, mm -hmm. and um, uh, they're you know they're they're leaving behind certain traditions, and they're they're getting new ones. I'm I am compulsively documenting what they're leaving not with any nostalgia and because i understand why they're going and i would if i was in their shoes i would go too but i am documenting it because it's going to be gone and um there's there is there there is a beauty to it i mean there's a beauty to a house that's made out of bamboo sitting mm -hmm. there on stilts i would not want to live in it nobody wants to live in it it's drafty it's cold i mean it looks beautiful mm -hmm. and it would go away everybody there would much prefer to live in a concrete box that's waterproof and 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 uh, tight and, and warm, mm -hmm. and has running water. And mm -hmm. so, uh, but they are leaving those. And so I, I so I appreciate what it is that mm -hmm. they lost. But they're moving there because they have more choices. They have the choice of education for their children. They have the choice of medical uh, uh, care that they don't have in the village. Speaking of education, Hayward has a question, maybe this will be getting toward the last one. What is the ine inevitable for education, schools and universities oh, yeah. and home, you know, home training like you did? Um, yeah. What, what are these things doing to education? Um, I actually came away from my experiments with virtual reality kind of impressed that that, that had a huge potential to teach us in a slightly different way, again, because you seem to be, or at least I seem to be experiencing things in a different part of my brain. And I think when you are moving things with your hands and they feel real, that that burns different circuits than just hmm. looking at them on a screen. And I think um, being able to learn, some people learn you know, much better that way. And I think that's potentially valuable, not just for mechanical skills, but even conceptual things that when you have that kind of a 3D and you have, an, you have a feeling, you have, you have a whole body involved, I think you can learn differently and we can learn how to maybe teach things that seem very conceptual right now, intellectual maybe even that way. So, I, I, so that's one thing that I think is, is, is going to be used. Um, I, I, I think the thing about that's inevitable in education is that we will become lifelong learners. That's that's the that's the thing is is that it it, it uh, um, you are going to need and will be taught the skills of how to learn and keep learning because um, there will be no alternative really um, that you just have to uh, you're going to be lifelong learners and hopefully that's the skill that you learn and that a lot of it won't take place in school. I'm very impressed with the kind of training that the military does, the way corporations do it. It's, it's phenomenal. Um, when they, you know, they, they train for results and they get them. And so um, maybe a lot of what you're learning is not going to be in school and we kind of know that. Um, so, so I think what's inevitable is just that, that, that learning how to learn critical thinking are going to be the things that you learn at school. So how does generations play out? Maybe we can end on this because... Yeah. Um, young come into a world which is, you know, we got a lot of these trends going on. And uh, it used to be, you know, they had to grow up before they got to really master the tools that are out there. Now it's the old farts that uh, cannot function. I mean, I can't 
type with my thumbs. <laughs> and so, I mean, I'm totally limited. Um, are, are young going to be increasingly sort of advantaged in this, uh, you are not late? Uh, they're really not late because, <laughs> you know, they've got so much stuff not to have to unlearn in order to function. Yeah, I, um, I would suspect so. I mean, I, 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 I think you could make a scenario where the youth of the world have an advantage. I mean, in, in Do you the, think cohorts are identifying themselves more? I mean, sort of each new tech sharing tech that comes along, sort of the, you know, the two years later gang in high school have, they're not using Facebook, they're using something else. Oh, you're like, oh, you're still using Facebook? You're, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and obviously that's, yeah. you know, if all of these trends continue, that's going to continue. So each cohort has its own sort of version of the digital world that distinguishes them, which is great, then that they start to own the world, but it also separates them. And, and our friend Bruce Sterling wrote this wonderful book, Holy Fire, uh, where basically people get to start living really long and then medicine gets to the point where you can take your long life and actually swap yourself back into a young body. And, but then the question is, can you keep up with the young who are actually young? <laughs> and his answer was no. Do you see this kind of issue? I don't see it in 30 years. Um, I, 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 I think. Well, at last. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I, mean I, I think most, like if we walk out into the city in 30 years from now, this city, other cities, it's going to be pre predominantly the same. Most of the stuff, most of the technology that we're surrounding here right now is old stuff. It, old it moves very slowly. Mm -hmm. you, you have these, these layers and um, most of our brains are, are very old brain. It's, mm -hmm. it's reptilian, mammal. There's a very thin layer of, of human consciousness on top. But most of our thinking is, 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 is old. And I think most of the technology in the world will continue to be old. And that the Industrial Revolution was about atoms, and it rearranged our world. But that's done. I think the rearrangement that we'll have even in 30 years is not going to be vast changes in the cityscape is going to be in the intangible world and in our understanding of how we're connected, of who we are, what does it mean to be human, how we spend our day. And so it's that it's the flow. So we're going to rearrange the flows of things, not the atoms. I think you're going to be pr pretty much the same. So that when we walk out in 30 years from now, it'll be look like the city, but we'll have a different idea of what a city is. We'll have a different idea of who we are. We'll have a different idea of how we relate to other people. So the new stuff keeps coming, but you say the old stuff doesn't go away? Doesn't go away. And that continuity is what gives us a shot, it sounds Exactly. Like. That's why old people will always have a role. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.